Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Hello, listeners. You have Kosha today doing the introduction for this amazing guest. Dr. Tara C. Smith is our guest in the speaker's chair for this episode of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices. I don't think anything can really do her justice in terms of an introduction. Um, she's actually a friend of ours, uh, both me and Shailushi, and her partner was on the podcast for season three, really early in season three. So if you're really interested, he is also a dear, dear friend. And that was Greg Tinkler, Dr. Greg Tinkler. And I highly, highly recommend you uh, go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. But Moving forward with Dr. Smith, Dr. Tara C. Smith, like I said, nothing can really do justice to her for an introduction. So I'm just going to read her Twitter intro, which is fantastic. You can, you can find her on Twitter at Aetiology, A-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y, and it is highly recommended that you do if you are on Twitter. She says, hello to new followers. Just wanted to say a few words about who I am and what I do. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. Most of my work has centered on the epidemiology and evolution of Staphylococcus aureus, especially in communities. We've done a lot of work looking at staph on farms, how it spreads between animals and people directly or via food products, and how antibiotic use on farms drives antibiotic resistance. I've also done work in science communication. I've published two papers on zombies and infectious disease, written three books on ID topics for the advanced teen set, and co-edited a book on Ebola, freelance, words in lots of places. Finally, I teach ID epi for grad students in an undergrad course on plagues and pandemics. So I spend a lot of time discussing and contextualizing ID history. Book on pertussis in the works, miscellaneous, women in science, politics, three kids, two dogs. Somehow I forgot to add, I also work on vaccine hesitancy. So if you see people randomly attacking me, that's probably why. That really sums up so much about what makes Tara so fantastic she is a brilliant scientist, an infectious disease epidemiologist. She's a professor. She works relentlessly to increase science literacy, decrease science denial, and she does that through 
writing about science in ways that are accessible and available and easy to digest by the masses. If you are not following her, if you are not familiar with her, please listen to this episode and follow her immediately after. Enjoy our conversation with Dr. Tara C. Smith, and we are definitely listening. Hi, my name is Tara C. Smith, she, her, and I am speaking. Welcome, Tara. Hi. We know you through my friend from college, Greg, who now Kosha has co-opted. <laughs> I do that with all of all of her friends. It's That's a running what my joke. sister was with, with my friends, too. I've, my sister is 20 months younger than me. All of my friends were her friends. So, yeah, I, I feel it. Are you the introvert or the extrovert? Are you both kind of introverted? No, I am the introvert. So yeah. But you came first. So I she, did. She yeah. was just like, oh, you're you're already here. <laughs> right. right. Well, I guess, yeah, the time the get the age gap is not as big. Kosha and I are almost four years apart. So that at least when we were younger, that would have been harder. And now and now Kosha just it the ongoing joke is that like my job is to like like find the friends so then you already vetted them. them. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Very convenient. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's how we know you through my friend Greg from college, who we interviewed in the previous season. So listeners, please go back to season two. And season two, season listeners, please go back to season three. Go back to all the seasons and just listen to the episode. <laughs> but right. if you want to hear the interview you have with Greg, Tara's partner, that would be it. All right, but we're not here to talk about Greg, and we're certainly not here to talk about COVID the whole time. We're here to talk about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You are a PhD. Sort of what was your journey like from the time you were a kid to the time you decided, I'm going to go get my PhD? Yeah, so I had no idea even what a PhD was, even in college, really. I mean, um, so I, I, I'm from uh, not even a small town. I'm from, I'm from the country in, in rural Ohio, you know, literally one of those towns where I had 60 people in my graduating class. Um, you know, most people were active in FFA, Future Farmers of America, or 4-H, or both. Um, my dad, back in the day, he, he grew up on a farm. He was the youngest of 13 kids. And so we, we were over at my grandma's a lot, you know, shearing sheep and, and gathering eggs and stuff like that when I was a kid. And he was the president of FFA back in the day. He worked in a the local tire factory. Um, but I was, you know, always exposed to, to all of that stuff. And so, you know, for me, I mean, I'd always plan on going to college. My mom had been a teacher um, before she ended up getting sick with multiple sclerosis when I was um, in kindergarten, but she had, you know, aspirations to go back initially after that. And I kind of figured, you know, that's what I would do something like that. But I, I mean, I always really liked science when I was a kid too, but I, again, I didn't really know. I mean, I didn't know any scientists. I didn't know that was really a, a real job, you know? Right you know, had a clear aptitude for, for math and science and did well in those areas. You know, I, I thought that I would do something medical, right? Because that's, you know, again, kind of that's the only job that I really knew of where you would be applying some of those things. Um, so when I went to, went to college, I went off to Yale in 1994 and somehow got into there. I was the second person in my school ever to go to an Ivy League college um, and the first one and 
only one sense to, to go to Yale. And so I started off pre-med and um, worked with, they had, a, they had a program, not surprisingly, to kind of steer pre-medical students um, to get volunteer experience at Yale New Haven Hospital there. And so I did that throughout my, my undergrad time. But really by the initial like year and a half, I realized that was just not for me. I, I was working in the emergency room and, you know, helping doctors run things around and uh, changing, you know, stretchers and, and things like that. And it was, you know, really interesting to be in the hospital and see how that worked. But, you know, just the, the idea of kind of the one-on-one -on -one patient stuff, and I could already see all the paperwork, you know, even as a, as a just a volunteer, it just wasn't for me. And, and so I was trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do as a biology major by that time, but no longer really pre-med. And so working at Yale New Haven, they had started a program working with local communities because New Haven is, even though Yale is extremely wealthy, New Haven is a relatively poor city in, in Connecticut. And so they had, had a lot of old buildings that still had lead paint. And so they had a lead paint testing and abatement program. So that was really kind of my first experience with a lot of community-based, you know, what, what now I know of as public health was, you know, going into, um, into these communities right around the hospital, asking them to enroll their children into this program, test them for lead, you know, if they had high levels to work with them to, you know, get lead abatement and, and get that out of their homes. And so I, I was working on that aspect of public health. And also I was into microbiology and, I was able to take graduate courses in, in infectious disease epidemiology and, and public health there at, um, at Yale's grad school as an undergraduate and also do research in a couple of different laboratories um, as part of my senior project. And this was the era of, you know, the coming plague by Laurie Garrett and the hot zone by Richard Preston and, you know, all of these kind of scary disease books, which really interested me in some of the microbe aspects of, of public health and epidemiology. So that's kind of how I landed in, in that area of, of public health and infectious disease was both, you know, just being interested in, in some of those stories and, you know, being able to work on those with some of the professors at, at Yale as an undergraduate. Very cool. Do you have a PhD in epidemiology? So my, my PhD, I, I, um, I ended up going back to Ohio after I graduated initially to take a year off and figure out where I wanted to apply to grad school because I had kind of gotten to the end and I you know, still hadn't realized, really figured out what I wanted to do. Um, besides, I knew that I wanted to do grad school, but I hadn't taken like the GREs and stuff like that in time to apply my senior year. So I ended up working in a microbiology lab in, in Toledo and um, that professor offered me a PhD position there. So my PhD is in very basic microbiology in that lab we did um, gene regulation and injecting mice with bacteria to see how how protein expression would change in these bacteria after passage through mice and and then gathering them back up through you know mouse blood or organs and, and things like that. So so my PhD was in in basic microbiology and kind of microbial genetics. Uh, but then after I finished that, I um, went to University of Michigan. I initially applied there actually to do a master's of public health degree in MPH. Um, and Michigan has a great program and I was accepted there. But then their director of the program is called um, Mac Epid. It was, let's see, Molecular and Clinical Epidemiology of Infectious Diseases. And somehow she came across my application, saw that I already had a PhD and, and asked if I was interested in doing a, a postdoc in her lab. That way, you know, I could still get training. She would, she would pay for some of the training that I had, some of the classes that I was missing, 
but I would still get, I would also get paid. So, um, so that ended up being more advantageous because by the time I graduated from my PhD, I had two children getting a job and getting paid was much better than, than, you know, racking up, racking up more debt to get another degree. Out of curiosity, when did you go to Michigan? So Michigan was, I graduated with my PhD in 2002. So I was there 2002 to 2004. When were you there, Shaylee? 98 to 2000. And I, I have, I have my master's in public health, but I have my, well, but my <laughs> master's is in um, health behavior, health education. And I ended up moving into more community-based health, uh, less health education and more around systems and policy work. So I was like, oh, maybe we're there at the same time. Almost. And it's, it was kind of the thing where you're like, you could easily run into someone 20 years ago when you were at the same place. With the, if you didn't know them, you would not necessarily register. Yeah, we were, we were hidden. At the time that I was there, they were doing construction on the building. And so we actually, my boss's lab was in like a sub sub basement of the epidemiology building while everything else was getting, you know, newly constructed. So like, I remember they were talking about the, they had like the nice, you know, the whatever, the model out. It was part of the deal. <laughs> I did not get to take advantage of that, but I've been back since and it looks, it looks lovely, better than our <laughs> sub-basement that I was in for several You're years. Like, I was in a boiler room. Yeah. A lot of those classrooms even then were like, mm, they've been like this for like 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. So that's really good. Yeah. All right. So we have that Michigan connection. Um, that's what you did your PhD in. And then did you go on to do a fellowship or did you move into research? Do you go to teaching? Sort of what came after your, you know, your, your terminal degree, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I was in Michigan for two years for that postdoc fellowship and that was really, so it was moving my, my PhD was um, in group A strep. My, my postdoc work was in group B strep. So, you know, doing similar stuff. Um, my PhD was looking at just you know, gene regulation of like this one regulon of five genes that my boss had looked at for like 20 years. I knew that wasn't for me. So with a postdoc, I was able to look at, you know, how all this different constellation of, of genes affected why some people got group B strep and, and some didn't and why some were virulent. You know, we had isolates that had, you know, killed babies um, in our collection. And we had ones that were you know, colonizing college students and were completely harmless to them as far as we could tell. So trying to figure out, you know, what in the genetics of those bacteria made them different was, was kind of what I, my project was um, at Michigan. And so then I, I kept doing kind of similar work. So I, I was there for two years and then I was offered a um, professorship at University of Iowa. So, um, so I went out there in 2004 to start my own, own laboratory. And continued a little bit of that groupie strep work, but that kind of um, fell away a little bit as I started working on uh, Staph aureus. So Staph aureus is a bacterium that everyone, you know, well, not everyone, but mo many people carry um, in their nose, in their throat, on their skin, you know, somewhere on their body. Again, for most people, perfectly harmless, but for some, it can cause really serious infections. And some people also have a version that is antibiotic resistant. So this, this superbug, methicillin resistant, Staphylococcus aureus or MRSA um, was what I focused on in Iowa. And because Iowa is the number one pig producing state, um, have about three times as many pigs as people. Isn't that on the state flag of Iowa? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if not, it definitely is one of the, the you know, the biggest um, 
factoids. More pigs than people. People, everyone in Iowa knows. Everyone that. in Iowa knows that there are more pigs than people. So, <laughs> so it's a great place to do this work because there had been this, you know, these papers coming out of Europe that found this new strain of MRSA in European pigs. So, and no one had looked at that in the United States yet. So, you know, perfect little project for us. We were out in the middle. I had obviously, you know, a lot of farming background and, oh, yeah. you know, knew how to be around animals, knew how to be around farmers. Um, so we, we started this project with a, a student who just happened also to be a, a veterinarian. He was a swine veterinarian, had been working in the field for 30 years and wanted to kind of switch into, you know, more public health stuff and, and stop, you know, wrangling 400 pound pigs and stuff like that. So, um, so he was able to work with us and the first farm that we went on and we were, you know, catching pigs and swabbing their noses and taking that back to the lab to grow staff. And 70% of the pigs were positive for MRSA on that first farm. So we, we kind of thought we might have something there. Oh, wow. wow. And that's everything is kind of snowballed from there. So this, this nose swabbing thing is like, you know how to do the nose swabs. Yeah, well, we did practice for that. And then it, it, it's very different. So we, we did pigs of all ages. So, you know, little baby pigs, like, you know, a couple of weeks old that are the cute little squealers. But then even when they're like, you know, we, we started with 10 week old pigs and, and those are like the size of, of a solid pit bull, you know, like a, a 40, 50 pound pit bull and they're strong. And so, you know, it was a great project to take students out to, especially city kids who had never been on a farm, you know, like, oh, 10 week old pigs, you know, we were just going to catch them and swab them. And they're, they're thinking those like tiny little teacup piglets. <laughs> yeah. And the realize they're like 40, 50 pounds by that age. And then we, we swab them up to 24 weeks. So then you're chasing them down and you have need two people to wrangle them and stick the swab in their nose. So it's, and they don't appreciate it. Like they don't no, like it. Yeah, no, they're, they're not, they're not thrilled about it. And then we had to do, you know, adults too, which, which luckily we get usually get the farmers to help with those or they're like the, the female ones already in a cage. So you just have to, you know, find a way to stick the swab in through the bars, but the, the, the boars, the, um, you know, the big boys, those we usually had, had to have the farmers help with us because those are, you know, five, 600 pounds and can be pretty aggressive sometimes. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, I mean, it's what you might as well jump on this back and start yeah. writing yes. it. And yes. Try and reach around the front. <laughs> right. I'm, so I want to back up just a little bit because I imagine that some people, when they hear MRSA, all they have heard of is this is the thing that's going to kill you in the hospital. Right. It sounded like you said it's, it's a particular, you know, strain of this, this bacterium that a lot of people have everywhere. So can you just talk us through a little bit? And, and staff too, I was going to say like staphylococcus because wasn't there this huge like scare several, I would say probably 20 years ago now, people getting staph infections from nail salons that were like eating away their hands and stuff. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so Staphylococcus aureus and, and MRSA. So the methicillin resistant version, I mean, are, are old, right? So um, they first started to become a problem mainly in hospitals. Cause of course that's where all of the antibiotics for the most part have been used over human history are in, in hospitals. And so we saw these MRSA strains in hospitals in the 1950s, shortly after methicillin came out. And, and from like the 1950s to really the 19, early 1990s, that was kind of where MRSA stayed, was in the hospitals. And then in kind of the mid 90s, actually in, in the Chicago area, was where these first strains of what we call community-associated staph aureus appeared. And those are the ones that mostly are associated with those 
like nasty infections in nail salons and in and like high school sports teams and professional sports teams and stuff like that. So these strains that are still methicillin resistant, still antibiotic resistant, but they're not coming from the hospital. They're out in the communities, just about anyone can have them. And those had a, a, a what we call a virulence factor. So a gene that makes it nastier called PVL, this, this Panton Valentine leukocytin gene is what it's called. And that was a, a, a hallmark of those, those strains. So those differentiated them from the hospital lineage that again had been circulating for like 40 years. What was weird with the European strains was so, you know, by now they had these, you know, these hospital associated strains of MRSA, these community associated strains of MRSA, but they found these ones in pig farmers in, in Denmark and in the Netherlands that were, were MRSA, but weren't either of those lineages. So they weren't the hospital, they weren't the community associated one. When you looked at like their DNA, they were this third type that came to be called livestock associated methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So this huge acronym, of course. La MRSA. Yes, exactly. So, <laughs> so they found those in the Netherlands, which also the Netherlands has a huge amount of, of pigs, and so does Denmark. But no one had looked in the United States because the focus was all on these, you know, these clinical strains. So we were the first ones to look, you know, kind of pull over some rocks and and look on these pig farms to see if they were here. And obviously they they were. So but it sounds like even though that Lamursa strain, the pig oriented strain. Lamursa. <laughs> so she's going with it. I like it. Livestock associated. <laughs> MRSA, La MRSA. It is. That's, that's that's the acronym. That's the acronym. Look, all my papers have that that on there. Yep. Um. So even though the pig strain was prevalent in both U.S. and European pig farmers, mm-hmm. it sounds like like there wasn't any negative. Like people weren't pig farmers weren't dropping dead of MRSA. Yeah. No, they weren't, and it it seems to be, you know, one not as um highly distributed as especially the community associated ones, which again, have gone all over the place and probably not as deadly, but it does cause a lot of infections in farmers. Like um, especially farmers, if, if, if you know any farmers, they, um, they tend to not like to see doctors a lot, like unless they're dying basically. So, you know, they'll get a, they'll get a cut or something. They'll just, you know, throw some alcohol on it or something and bandage it up. And the, yeah, they're good to go. Sometimes though, that doesn't work. And so you get these deep, you know, wound infections from some of these livestock associated MRSA strains that now are difficult to treat because they're antibiotic resistant. So we've seen a lot of those. Once we found that this was here in, in you know, present in Iowa, I, well, I wrote a grant to get more funding. So of course, that's what you do as a scientist. <laughs> um, and and we, we got some, we got funded. And the first really large study we did, we went out into I forget how many, about half of Iowa's counties and enrolled, you know, several thousand pig farmers at one of the enrollment events, you know, we, we, we described to them, of course, you know, you're going to get your nose swabbed, you're going to get your throat swabbed. And then one of the things we wanted them to do was to follow up over time and let us know if they got an infection, whether they knew it was staph or not, you know, something that looked like a staph infection, just let us know. And while we were telling one guy this, he starts to pull off his shoe and he's like, oh, like this. He was a diabetic. He had a, a wound, a foot infection that was not healing. And so we swabbed it at the time. And sure enough, it was Staph aureus and it was the MRS, the livestock associated MRSA strain in his wound <laughs> at enrollment. Like, 
Yes, just like that. And please get in this ambulance and go to the emergency yes, room yes. right now. Yes, we, and that's the thing. Don't I mean, me. We, don't touch me. We, we can't, you know, provide treatment there because, you know, I'm not a physician, I'm just an epidemiologist, but we definitely recommended, uh, you know, going to the doctor. And, and he had been, I mean, he had been seeing his physician, but again, it just wasn't, you know, wasn't healing well. So that one did heal well, but then he got another one like another year later or so into the study. And the nice thing that we could do is, is we had samples from, from his nose and from his throat. And actually he had a spouse in the study too. And, and the sample from her, I forget if it was her nose or throat, but we could type all of those and see that they all matched, you know? So, so this was something that was being transmitted within the family. And then from his other one, a couple of years, you know, a year after whatever, we could see it was still almost identical, um, but in over the year it had acquired, I think, one more type of, of resistance to another antibiotic over oh, the wow. year. So we could follow that over time and see kind of how it was evolving, you know, probably on his farm, but then causing him infections too. So they're not, wow. you know, necessarily benign, even if they're not making everyone drop dead, but they still can cause these infections. And that, you know, and over the last couple of years, we've been thinking so much about transmission via, you know, nose and mouth droplets, right? And to remember that strains of MRSA aren't transmitted by breathing on each other necessarily, right? You're not good. Even if you have it in your nose and throat, which it sounds like these people did, they weren't getting sick because it was in their nose and throat. It needs to get your bloodstream into your wound and kind of sit there and have some time to like get real comfortable and start a party um, for it to become a problem, right? Because it sounds like she was fine. Even though she was carrying those strains, she was carrying that bacterium. It wasn't like she wasn't getting sick. Right. Exactly. It wasn't going into her lungs and causing those kinds of problems. It was really like when there was a wound and I'm sure it didn't help this dude was diabetic because then that's just like. He was at risk for that. Yeah. But I mean, that's the thing is that people can become long-term carriers of this, you know, they, they might not even ever know that they have it, but when they do get sick, that puts them at an extra risk. You know, if they get influenza, for example, influenza and staph are a terrible combination so that you, you know, you get flu, your lungs get damaged, you already have staph in your nose, you're kind of, you know, it, it, it's going into your respiratory tract. And so it can colonize your lungs and, you know, cause a really bad, what we call a secondary infection. So the, the flu might not kill you itself, but that secondary bacterial infection from staff that you've been carrying in your nose for a year, you know, could wipe you out. So that's the type, type of thing we're concerned about, especially since farmers tend to be, you know, older, tend to not, um, you know, not be insured. So not get, get care, tend to live in rural areas, be far from good hospitals or, or even, you know, minute clinics or something yeah, like that. So, or something. Yep, exactly. And like you said, like this guy's foot was falling off. <laughs> And he was like, oh, like this thing that I've had for several weeks. So it, they're not known for being proactive with their health. Yes. Well, yes. just, I mean, so much other stuff, right? They're not close to clinics going to a primary care physician for an injury that you think it just needs to heal or the flu or what feels like what feels like the flu. You're like, that's like a whole half a day and I drive into town and blah, blah. And it's take, and I don't have that time. I don't, I don't have time to take off half a day or even the most preventative care of, you know, the basic preventive care. It's like, I feel sick. I need to stay in bed. No, that just never happens. Yep. You got animals to milk. You got, you know, chickens to, to get their eggs and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. And no one to just pull in for you. The whole thing's going to fall apart 
if you don't get out there and take care of it. So my mother-in-law grew up on a dairy farm. It was their farm. It wasn't one of these industrial farms that are so prevalent nowadays. Right. Like, and they weren't owned by like Dean's Foods or whatever. It was like their farm. And so her dad did everything. Yep. Yep. You know, get up and milk the cows and get them out there and then clean. You know, it was like all day long, every day until, I mean, I assume that you'd have to be like literally, I mean, almost literally on your deathbed for your like, I can't do this. Yep. No, I mean, my, my grandpa, he, he passed before I met him. My dad's dad, he literally had a heart attack on his tractor and died. So, I mean, I used to work in, uh, I work in mental health and neuroscience now, but I used to work in urology and the joke, which is not so much of a joke, but the joke is for a man to go to the doctor, they either have to be dying or their penis has to be falling off. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Which is the same thing in some level <laughs> for most guys. Yes, it's yes. like, what is the point of being alive? If my penis isn't working uh, in one way or the other, like either I can't pee well, or I'm peeing too much, or like, I can't get an erection. Side note, our dad, our dad is a retired urologist. You could tell the guys who are coming in to ask for ED meds because they would bring up everything under the sun. <laughs> my dad called it doorknob questions. Cause he'd have his hand on the door and be like, okay, then we'll see you in a few months. And they're like, Oh, one more thing. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that was in Iowa, but you're not in Iowa. You're not at Iowa anymore. Right. Yes. So you came over, you're in Ohio now. Yes. You're at Kent state. Correct. What are you still doing pig research or have you switched? Mostly switched away from that. So um, just cause it's, it's so hard to set up those networks here and, and get, people to trust you um also not as many pigs yeah no well not as, we still have a lot of pigs here in Iowa not so much here in, in northeastern Ohio where I am right now they don't have it on the flag though yeah yeah but um it, it got a little dicey so when we started doing this work you know no one knew who I was and no one knew anything about livestock associated MRSA or anything but then you know we, we, we've published I mean 50 papers or so just on this topic and and so now I'm kind of a bad guy in that area <laughs> Um, that, you know, a lot of people don't want to work with me because I'm just trying to like, you know, put farmers out of business or something like that. That's clearly what you're trying to do. Right, right. right. I mean, that's, that's the industry point of view, you know, rather than trying to protect their public, you know, their health and, and protect public health in general. It's just, I want to, you know, shut down pig farming or something. So, um, so this kind of been a little bit of, of poison to try to work with new pig farmers in a new place. Um, but we have still done a lot of like environmental sampling and, and trying to look at how how Staph aureus in general kind of moves around, you know, just the environment. So we've done samples here looking at, you know, lots of different animals. We've done, um, you know, environments like on campus and like in, in um, you know, playgrounds and stuff like that and done like wild goose sampling and other wild animal sampling you know, it, some of them actually carried some livestock associated strains too. Not surprisingly, they would, you know, land on pig farms and migrate and carry their, the bacteria with them. So, so we've done a lot of, of other things as, as well, besides pigs, just trying to look at, you know, really broadly look at Staph aureus in the community outside of, of kind of the healthcare setting, basically. Wow. Okay. So everything now is like pre-pandemic or post-pandemic right. <laughs> instead of BC and AD. Um, yeah. How, when did you move from Iowa to Ohio? So it was 2013. Oh, so we, okay. so yeah, so we had time to, you know, set up and, and get a lot of stuff done before 
the pandemic, luckily. <laughs> Got a lot of students trained at Kent State and, and a lot of you know projects kind of started and most of them finished before the pandemic began. Okay. I was I was just going to comment that you said like wild geese and I was like are there any other kind of geese <laughs> There are there are domestic geese people people No but they're also yeah. like mean and wild <laughs> That's true that's true Like there's not that's true. I guess I was thinking like tame there's no such thing as a tame goose uh -huh. There's like domestic geese and wild geese but it's like they're all kind of feral <laughs> Yes the, the domesticated geese are just like just barely keeping their like <laughs> asshole assholery like <laughs> under wraps uh, that's right i like i went biking the other day and there were a bunch of it was at fermi lab and there were a bunch of geese there and every time i see geese i'm like super nice to them like i talk to them really <laughs> nice like biking i was like hello everything's fine hi Miss like, like, <laughs> like, yes. don't don't come they're mean they are really mean they are super mean wild wild fowl are mean just generally yes. so all right that's a cute aside. So what, what are you studying now specifically? Like what is your lab working on now? So right now the lab is closed. So my last student, I mean, honestly, it was, it was kind of good timing. I, I had a, an undergraduate student who was working with me. She was a Goldwater scholar. So she got a, a pretty big national scholarship for that. Um, she was working on a project we were doing in collaboration with um, some Boston scientists looking at the genomics of Staph aureus from wild rats um, that were that were captured in Boston. Um, so she was finishing up some of that. Actually, still kind of wrapping up that paper, and then she started her PhD program at Johns Hopkins um, fall of 2020. Um, so she was the last one I had kind of full time in the lab before the pandemic started. And uh, since then, I was you know I was going to have summer students. I was going to do all these projects, and they just have obviously kind of fallen to to the wayside since then. You were already planning on taking a sabbatical, right? Right. In yeah. Fall of twenty twenty. So that, in terms of timing, I'm not going to say it was good. But <laughs> no, that is actually the worst timing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A pandemic is never good. Right. But there were not a ton of loose ends happening in your lab. Right. Yeah. I, I was lucky that I didn't have to worry about, you know, people in my lab. I mean, lots of people did. Lots of people had projects shut down for a year or more, you know, and, and you know, reagents that expired and had to replay. I mean, just all kinds of mess. So luckily I did not. My advisor from, I went to Michigan State. I'm not mad about <laughs> you guys going to use we're all we're all grad students right everyone's right. like oh my god you and your sister must like totally hate each other during football season i was like i didn't have time right no but my advisor works on um salamanders and axolotls mostly and she had to get she had to go every day to take care of her animals she was only allowed with special permits blah blah, blah. she knows somebody who had to sacrifice all of their octopus get like they couldn't get the animal care permits to be able to have someone on campus every single day to take care of them so they had to sacrifice all of the animals and it was like devastating oh yeah i'm it's like th there are levels of the pandemic that like you just don't even think about right yep, yep. yeah and i'm lucky i didn't i didn't have to deal with any of that but i did yeah i was supposed to do a sabbatical um fall of 2020 to work on a, a book project and obviously that that got uh, sucked away into interviews and reading papers and uh, you know just trying to keep up on all of the the developments instead and dealing with your family at home all the time yeah that too 
<laughs> that's like, that's what I would think about, which is like, I mean, it was hard enough doing my normal thing and having my children upstairs and trying to get them to like do their work. Right. And then having my spouse around the corner who never worked from home in his basically entire life. And then he's like around the corner all the time. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and he yeah. is an introvert. And when he is on the phone, he talks so goddamn loud. He's very loud and he's very like Mr. Finger Guns. Like he oh. turns it up like to 11. At one point I was like, who is that? And she was just like, that's my husband. I was like, oh, that's weird. Just as a side note about, and we're going to go into dis- discussing sort of what your life was like during the pandemic, because you weren't just a normal, not, you know, parent trying to do their job and deal with their kid and all that stuff you had a public facing role. Right. Right. And that complicates things on a whole nother level. I think it's very interesting. So I'm an extrovert and I probably, when I'm in person with people am much louder and much bigger in terms of my movement and this and that. And then I would get on zoom and I'm like, wow, (laughs) I'm all over the place in the slow box. And so on zoom, I'm a lot chiller than I would be in real life. And then I hear my partner and he's like turns it up to 11 and I was like do the introverts pull it up and the extroverts pull it down because I'm like if people are experiencing I'm having a hard time experiencing me being like this movement <laughs> and this loud I'm like whoa calm down Shayla I think there is something to that because I was on the phone with and I'm an introvert and so I was on the phone with someone and I was ordering lunch and I was like I said something and Brian, I hung up the phone and my husband was like, did you just say the word folks? <laughs> I was like, what do you folks want for lunch tomorrow? And he's like, why did you do that? I was like, it's my sales voice. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. He just never hears it. Uh-huh. And I was right. like, no, it didn't sound weird to me, but I'm like, you just didn't hear that out before March of 2020. There were memes at that time about Apparently I'm married to the guy who circles back around or whatever it is. Right. Uh, because that, you know, for most of us, we don't work next to our spouse all the time. We don't hear how they interact with their colleagues or, you know, at least in that first, you know, six months, we were hearing a lot of that stuff for the first time. And it was really like, wow, you're like this at work, huh? (laughs) So all that aside, that's, that's fun. And it's kind of funny to think about like, it's almost cutesy, right? Um, what it was like at the the first three, four months. And we're like, we were so innocent. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll bake some bread. We'll do some crafts. The sourdough, the sourdough starters. <laughs> but yeah, all the, the happy hours and like the hanging out, on, you know, like the game nights and things, which I think was really helpful for us, but as a society, but at the same time, it's like, really cutesy to think that like like you Koshi was saying is so naive oh it'll be over in a few months and we can just kind of take the just relax a little bit and take our foot off the gas which I think was nice but then it's like oh this is gonna go a long time (laughs) right right so that was March of 2020 talk a little bit if you don't mind about that first six months where you went from being going to work every day at the university doing your research helping your students to (laughs) right (laughs) whatever like what and you ended up being a public persona and talking about this publicly what was that like for you 
Yeah, I mean, it was surreal because I mean, I, I teach my my fall class um, that actually was the one that was uh, canceled in, in 2020 because of my sabbatical is on plagues and pandemics. So, I mean, I teach this to undergraduates every year about, you know, the bubonic plague of the, the 1300s and, you know, obviously lots of influenza stuff of 1918 and all of these responses to this and and then to be in it was just really, you know, surreal. Oh my gosh. You know, even starting in probably in January, I was asking my my colleagues, um, my boss and whoever I could at the university, like, where is our pandemic plan? You know, because because I could find references to it on, you know, on the internet and I could find different disaster plans, but for the United States or for for for, for our, our university. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Yep. Yep. Because I mean, I had worked before on, you know, pandemic preparedness and done, you know, what are called like tabletop exercises where, you know, you you try to role play all these things and, and see what's missing and see where your your shortcomings are and stuff like that. And even in January, I really didn't think this would become as bad as it did. But, you know, I wanted to didn't know what where all the pieces were and, and who would be involved. Is this when you started hearing, because like you probably were more in tune with what was happening in Wuhan and the pneumonia that was coming out, people dying of this like weird pneumonia. Is that when you started kind of like picking up on the clues? Oh yeah. I mean, I posted on my Facebook page, you know, when ProMed put out, you know, the first alert for that, that there was a, you know, a pneumonia of, of, I forget what, you know, unspecified type or something like that. And initially, I, you know, very early on those first days, I thought it was going to be a bird flu because, you know, they said it was not transmissible human to human, um, which is what we usually see with like H5N1 or some of the other, you know, avian influenzas. And then, you know, like a day or two later, they're like, oop, whoops, we were wrong. You know, it is spreading in families. And now it's, a, you know, we have identified it as a coronavirus. And so it's like, oh, that's not good. But I mean, we still had two other epidemic human coronaviruses that we had really, you know, gotten under control. So, you know, I wasn't like panicking or anything yet. Um, but, you know, trying to get out some information about, you know, what this is, what you can do and, and, you know, and stuff like that. I think I wrote my first article for self on this topic, maybe like in February or late January of 2020, you know, with again, just kind of saying like, you know, here's what we know. Here's what could happen, you know, here's what you can do if you're worried. I mean, you know, this is before any, any lockdowns or anything like that. Um, but, you know, and, and again, I was trying to figure out kind of what we were going to do at our university, you know, so, you know, we have students, we have, um, a program with students in, in Italy that, you know, they go over there every year, you know, there was some there during this time and we got them out kind of right before really the shit hit the fan in, in Italy. Cause of course that was one of the early countries that was really hard hit. We kind of performed this, you know, little group within the university that became basically our pandemic leadership committee to try to steer, you know, all of these choices and figure out what we were doing with so many groups because we have you know students we have faculty we have staff we have volunteers we have you know employees working with laboratory and stuff like that so all of these different groups to figure out you know what to do and then you know early in march ohio was one of the first ones to really shut down um even when you know i think we only had a handful of cases in the state but you know the governor said okay you know, schools are closing, universities are closing, we're going to close restaurants for in, you know, in-person dining and go to kind of a, a minimalist thing for a while here. You know, I, I think mentally I was, I was waiting for something like that, but even when it happened, I still wasn't, wasn't prepared. Do you think 
retrospectively, right? With nobody would ever know that, right? That's we can't go back and would have not have known it. But knowing what we know now, which is obviously a lot more than we knew then, <laughs> would you say that generally the response was like we under responded? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we took it seriously enough early on, you know, when, when March came and it was clear that this was going to be a mess, you know, I mean, just, you know, we, we didn't have, there was, there was still infighting amongst like the CDC and FDA um, about uh, testing in particular. Testing was one of, you know, the real messes that still kind of lingered through, through 2020, you know, early on, I think we had a little bit more unity maybe amongst, um, you know, political divisions that really quickly um, died out and, and then became this really divisive thing. So I think that's the big thing that we weren't really prepared for was, you know, some of the science, but really it was more of the behavioral aspects that we, I, you know, I think in public health, you know, and, and, and response just really underestimated and did not put nearly as much time and effort into, you know, preparing for then like the, the sciencey stuff. Yeah. One of my ongoing com- complaints kind of, it's not, I mean, issues with where we are in public health is that public health as a field has not done a good job about touting its successes, mm-hmm. right? I remember a professor of mine in grad school basically was like, when public health succeeds, nobody knows it, which is the problem, right? right? People only think about food safety, part of public health generally, when there's a listeria outbreak or that, you know, people are having, the people are throwing up because the lettuce is bad or whatever. But if you have a salad and you're fine, you don't think about the fact that you had a fine salad and you didn't get sick because of all the food safety stuff going on. We don't talk about the absence of negative outcomes. Yeah. Right. And so it's largely invisible and people don't value it as a result because we don't say what we did. And as you know, consequently public health as a system, systemic, you know, sort of systemic and systematic approach has been, you know, cut back and cut back and cut back to the point where it actually can't provide a robust response. It doesn't know, it doesn't have, there's not enough people doing the work. There's not enough money. This, you know, there's not enough testing for all of this stuff that would have helped us. It's not there. And obviously viruses work faster than people. So if you start at the same time, you're always going to be lagging. Yep. And that's something, I mean, again, being on these, you know, pandemic preparedness committees since really 2004, I mean, that's one thing that has been pointed out again and again and again, and you get every once in a while, you know, this influx of money, like, you know, we we got some, some money for avian flu in the, you know, early to mid 2000s. And then we had um, the swine flu pandemic in 2009. And so we got a little bit more, um, you know, funding for that. And then even before that, of course, with the anthrax um, attacks in 2001, we got money for bioterrorism and things like that. But it's all this kind of, you know, short-sighted influx of money for specific things, you know, for bioterrorism detection or for, you know, specific pandemic threats and response. But yeah, to strengthen the entire system and to hire and train public health, you know, professionals, that has never really been the thing. And then when that money goes away, what do you do then? You know, you have these people that don't have jobs, you have cutbacks again across, you know, state and local health departments that can't do their job anymore. 
And so that's been kind of this, you know, boom and bust cycle ever since. And, you know, now not only are, are we losing all of the people that were trained as contact tracers and stuff like that during the pandemic and all of these people that have been trained on those various things, but in, I forget exactly how many states, but, you know, multiple states have now actually reduced the powers of their public health departments, including Ohio. I mean, basically just restrain what public health can do. You know, we know this is not going to be the, the last outbreak. So, you know, responding to the next one and even, you know, getting basic childhood vaccines, Ohio is also trying to to curb vaccine mandates for like school. Yeah, even for, you know, measles and mumps and stuff like that. So as, as far as public health goes, we're in a much worse place than we were in, you know, January of 2020 now. Yeah. So it's, it's a little discouraging. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> as Koshi had mentioned earlier, one of the challenges is that many people on the science denying side, especially the anti-vax people, the anti, you know, the COVID, the anti-COVID people. We're all anti-COVID. No one's <laughs> all right. <laughs> like COVID deniers, all those people, all those groups of people, they s- seem to be very good at getting their message across and rallying people to their cause. And the public health, you know, science oriented people, there's a lot more of us, I think, than on the other side. And yet we have a hard time raising our voice or saying what we want or finding the right sticky message so that people will really get it. So I definitely want to come back to that. But Kosha, I know you had a question. So you had said that even back in January of 2020, when you started seeing the writing on the walls or when Ohio started like shutting down, you said like, you never would have thought it would have been this big and and kind of lasted this long. It was that behavioral stuff and and the political divides and like what people were saying, like it, it became about personal freedoms and blah, blah, blah. What is it like, if you could go back and rewind and start again, what are some of the things from your expertise would you put in place to course correct that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the biggest biggest misstep that we had that kind of messed up a lot of the things that came after was the masks. When we first saw this, um, when we were doing you know epidemiological studies of some of the very early cases and and like family clusters and and the um, you know the spread on cruise ships and stuff like that it didn't look like there was a lot of transmission before people were symptomatic. And that's what what we had seen with the original SARS and with MERS. Like you spread this virus when you're really sick. Okay. So it becomes important to, you know, to quarantine people if they're exposed, to isolate them if they're sick. But any kind of pre-symptomatic interventions for the general public weren't really necessary for, for SARS or MERS. We screwed up with that because because obviously with with this one with with COVID nineteen with SARS CoV two, a lot of people can spread this before they get symptoms, and so that's why it spreads so easily early on. And you know the, the reason we thought that wasn't happening was why masks were not recommended for the general public. And you know Fauci came out and said you know save your N ninety five for for um, you know healthcare workers and stuff like that, and d- don't hoard those, don't use those, they're not going to help you because we didn't think it could be spread before you got sick. So I wish we could go back and, and, you know, take that back and just, you know, use, look to Asian countries, you know, start masks right away, um, you know, have that kind of cultural 
you know, responsibility for everybody else that if you have this respiratory infection, you know, even if you don't know if it can be spread before symptoms or not, just wear masks, just everybody do it, you know, keep spread down. So instead of saying, like pulling it back and then trying to push it again, just be like, yep, we said masks, just wear masks until we know. Exactly. Because I mean, we, we were saying masks then by like, you know, by about March or so, we, we saw that, oops, there's lots of this pre-symptomatic spread. Everyone should be wearing masks to keep that down. But by then, you know, it was already out there. And then it became a flashpoint to, again with the political divide. I mean, it just became so silly that it, it, it was, a you know, a, an identity, whether you were wearing a mask or not. And, uh, you know, so so I, I think if if we had changed that from the beginning, if if we had gotten, you know, Trump and his cabinet and his, you know, his politicians to wear masks from the start, you know, I think that could have changed things. There's that movie, uh, yeah, Remember the Titans, where there's just the one, and it's so funny because I always, this is my sports analogy and it has nothing to do with the sport actually, but the one guy says, attitude reflects leadership. Yes, I agree that there was this confusion and maybe we should just be like, okay, oh, you know what? People are wearing masks. That's safer than not wearing masks if this does blow up on us. So let's just leave it there until we know more. But also it came from the top. And it's when you have such a loud minority saying, well, this has to do with my freedoms. And then your leader is saying not to do those things. It's so hard to fight that. And I mean, part of it also goes back to, again, lack of pandemic preparedness. I mean, if we had had a huge stockpile, like we should have, of surgical masks, of N95 masks, you know, that were put in place at one point before the flu pandemic in, in 2009, and then really never replenished to the level that they should have been, that would have been much easier to say, you know, we don't have to worry about keeping these masks for healthcare workers, because we have plenty here, everyone have them. But that never really got done. And yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, Tara, which is it wasn't that people shouldn't wear masks. It was that healthcare workers on the front line needed the masks that were there. What we saw was that people hoarded everything. So if we said wear a mask, people would hoard masks. And that was like, please don't do that because people who work in hospitals need them. And this is where I think we can explore science communication is that then people go, oh, I don't need to wear a mask. Again, as Kosha said, and you were just talking about the leadership of our country, the people that, you know, the people that are sort of at the top who set the example, flat out denied the need for the things that would have helped us. So one, we're hearing one message that gets, you get just truncated, right? No mask. And then you're seeing people Look, for the for the part of the country that was like, I don't think Trump knows what he's doing. You know, we were like, I don't care what you say. Yeah. And we're gonna listen to people, this, you know, the people who we trust. But the other part of the country who I think could have been swayed by that leadership doing the science guided things, we're like, I I'm hearing this, and the people I believe in don't don't do it. So I would never need to do it. I also want to loop back around to something you said, which was about how the FDA and the CDC were at odds with each other. How do you think that affected people's perception of what was going on? Yeah, um, good question. And I don't know people outside of my circles. I don't know, really paid attention to that. But I mean, it definitely ticked us off because it 
it, it made it more difficult to approve some of the early tests because, you know, the FDA wanted things approved to one level and CDC wanted them approved to another level, you know, just basically, you know, FDA wanted higher standards essentially, which is understandable. I mean, we all want tests that are high quality, but we also need them, you know, just to be able to detect some kind of a minimum, right? So that, you know, we would rather have people that are, are you know, falsely testing positive and then get a confirmation with, you know, the more um, rare tests like a PCR or something, you know, then have everybody just not know and just go about their business, right? So, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure, again, kind of how much that affected the public at large as, as far as like, at least their perceptions, but I mean, it certainly hindered their ability to get tests, you know, earlier than, than we had them. Well, and the whole idea of like Fauci and science and no one knows what's going on and everyone's flip-flopping and like, no, 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 we just know more now, right? Like there's a reason we don't still leech people and bleed them out because we know more. Right. It's not, we're not flip-flopping on leeches. We just, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> that's the whole idea is like, once, once, no, once they said, you know, wear masks, don't wear masks. No, now go back to it. It's like, well, no one knows the fuck they're doing. And, or like the CDC and the FDA can't, you know, they can't come to terms and they can't agree. And so clearly all of this is for shit. And it's like, no, 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 this is actually, you're watching science in real time. Mm -hmm. It was, but I mean, it was also, you know, because the leaders of CDC and FDA are both also political appointees, there was also friction there. There was friction between the leadership at both of those agencies and kind of the, you know, the regular people who are just working there and do all of the actual science. So, I mean, it was just, you know, it's just a mess and it really shows kind of the, the limitations of the whole system, you know, for political appointees for that, you know, in a regular year it's 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 probably fine they you know they skate by they do what they're supposed to they they're the face of the agency you know they're some kind of a you know a great scientist so they have have that backing but they don't always know what they're doing and that's what some of the you know the long-term leadership at those places are for and with cdc especially we had those people you know that were pushed out because they were saying some of these uncomfortable truths early on and so then you, they disappeared from the press conferences after like February 2020. So, I mean, that's a problem too, is, is just how we, you know, arrange these agencies and, you know, who we give the power to in them and, you know, how we, it's not the people who really have that long-term experience who have been through other pandemics and stuff. Yeah. So that was, that was also a mess. And also, of course, very politicized with the, the previous administration. Wow. I... <laughs> <laughs> It's like putting me back there. Like, oh yeah, remember? yeah. <laughs> Trying to figure out how to word this. One of the challenges, it's not about leadership, not about politics, not about what people are saying, but more about people's ability to understand what is being said. Right. So the three of us have science backgrounds, um, have gone through graduate programs, understand how the scientific method works, and that you start out with an idea about what's happening and your idea either gets disproven or it gets not disproven. You don't just find out the facts. The facts evolve. Well, no, the facts don't evolve over time. Our understanding of the reality evolves over time because for in this case we had not seen anything like this it wasn't 
an influenza strain. And we saw an influenza, you know, we saw an influenza uh, strain that wiped out so, so many people. I, I want to say half the world's population. I don't think that's it. This is not Thanos. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Millions of people. Mm-hmm. I think that's 1918 true. was about 50 to 100 million. Yeah. So millions upon millions of people. We know how to deal with an influenza. We know what that's about. We know some of these other types of COVID even strains. And this was unique in, in many aspects, right? Like you were saying earlier, we had not really seen a COVID strain that was transmissible before symptoms showed up. And yet you hear something on one hand, then you hear something later. And most people are like, they don't know what they're talking about. You say this, you say that. Like Kosha said, we don't flip flop on leeches. We just realized (laughs) that leeches don't work and we should try, you know, not bleeding people to death when they're already sick. It was a thought. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that is, that would be a scientific test with a control. We have 50 (laughs) people here that we're going to attach leeches to and 50 people that we don't attach leeches to. How many people on each side survive? (laughs) What thoughts do you have about overall scientific literacy in our society and what we can do to help people understand even basic science a little bit more? Mm Yeah, and that's tough. Cause, I mean, <laughs> it's such a huge gap right now. I mean, and, and not even now, just always, it's always been an issue. And people are fighting against that, of course, right now, you know, fighting against teaching any kind of, of factual information and trying to politicize pretty much everything. So, I mean, I think we definitely need, I mean, no one is challenging the fact that we need better educational, not, not standards, but it's just a better way to teach. You know, other countries do it so much better than us in, you know, fewer hours with fewer stress on, you know, less stress on students, better outcomes. And often those countries have fewer resources. Yep. They don't have the money that we do or the infrastructure that we do, and yet they're doing it better. Yep. Yep. I mean, we, we focus so much on testing, which, mm-hmm. you know, is, is just not the way. And, and science is, is something that's so great because it's, it's, you know, you don't have to learn every single fact, you know, if, if you have an idea of, of how it does work and how you get to those facts, you know, how, how science comes from an understanding of, of you know, a blank slate, then, then moving on to, you know, the universe, like we just saw with, you know, the, the release of all the pictures yesterday and today. I mean, you know, just, just trying to teach the process is what is so much more important, I think. And we spend way too much time on the facts and on, you know, standardized testing and stuff. But I mean, I also want to, you know, some people when they're kind of new to science communication too, they jump into, you know, the deficit model of science communication. So if only you could teach everybody all the facts, they would have, you know, the, um, the basis to make good choices, right? But that's not really, that doesn't happen either, you know, because, because choices that you make, especially about behaviors and things like that, are not only informed by facts, they're informed by values, they're informed by your history, they're informed by, you know, who you interact with, they're informed by who you think you are, you know, who you see yourself as. Well, there's not, there's not one person on the planet that actually thinks that smoking is good for them. Right. Right. Like we all know, yet there are a lot of people who smoke. So the fact has very little to do with the behavior. Exactly. So knowledge doesn't always change behaviors. And that's what I think some people 
you know, jump into a little bit too much. Like, you know, they see how how bad some of the, the science education here is. And if you just plug that gap, then everything will be great. But I mean, we need so much more than that. That's one step of it. You know, we need to have better science education and stuff, but that's not the only thing that will, you know, will change things here. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about this stuff. And I was like, that is, that's my MPH. I can just hear my teacher <laughs> talking about how like knowledge is just the very beginning of a change model. There's like four steps before you even get to change. Right. <laughs> Pre-contemplation is a stage, right? And then there's <laughs> contemplation. Which I love that someone has to be like, hold on. Right. I have to think about thinking about something. Yes. How long did you think about, how long did you think about running before you started running? Or how long did you think that you might want to think about? Yeah. Or like, oh, like moving, right? You're like, well, we probably should move eventually. And then we need more space. And then you actually start looking at, yeah, no, I totally get it. Right. And then there's a whole nother level, as you were saying, about people need to believe that they can do what they do, right? So it's not just, do I know and plan the steps out? It's, do I feel like I'm going to be able to do this? Do I feel like I have self-efficacy? Can I, and then resisting all of the, Tara, as you were saying, resisting all of the stuff that comes from the outside, just just telling someone that smoking's bad for you doesn't change it. It's, you know, God, think about smoking, it's going to be hard. Okay, you try some stuff, doesn't stick try something else this time it sticks it's really hard and if you go out to the bars every night and your bros or your chicks at the bar ask you to come outside and hang out with them when they smoke it's much more likely that you will fall back because of your environment and just how much influence that has so what would a asset-based model of science communication look like <laughs> man you're asking that too complex questions for me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what I try to talk to people about is is using what is available, right? So and and, and using those things that we think about as, as maybe being a detriment, right? So so your bros, you know, at, at the bar or whatever. What if instead of you know having them being kind of a bad influence, what if we could bring in some of those people to be um, you know, leaders to be to be good influences on these type of things, right? So, you know, so I've tried to to you know emphasize like the importance of you know community leadership and and getting people on board where they are, right? So not a bunch of you know scientists going to communities that they're not a part of that that you know don't really know them, don't respect them to lecture about you know vaccination or COVID or, or what have you, or smoking, what have you, you know. Um, but, you know, you really need to get buy-in from local people who are known, who are trusted in the community already, and, you know, really bring those in to talk about these topics, and, you know, and, and especially if we're trying to convince them to do something, that's who you need to start with. So, um, you know, we've seen this before, in, you know, in, in lots of other, um, you know, health promotion areas that, you know, that's really where change can start. That's really who is much more influential than a, you know, lecture from a random scientist that, you know, probably is going to be way up here anyway, and people aren't going to understand it, is these little nudges by people that you know, by people that you trust. So, I mean, I, I think that's key is, is bringing them, instead of trying to 
you know, dump all of our information for everything, you know, into their heads and have them do this stuff, just, you know, bring them into the fold, get them interested in this and really have them advocate for this. They don't have to know every single thing about everything. You know, they just need to know that vaccination helps protect our community. And here's how we're going to go about it. Here's where we have shipments. Here's where we have um, it available. You know, here's who's eligible. That's all you need. So I, I think a lot more of those partnerships are really what we need to get these messages out, even if it's not, you know, a complete understanding of, of everything. And some scientists would freak out that it's, you know, these, these things are being overlooked or, or, you know, dumbed down, right, is the, the terror words for a scientist. But well, I think some of it is meeting people's value systems, yep. right? Like that community does not care if COVID is carried on mucus droplets. That is not, they don't care that a mask will do that. What you can do though is say, if your grandma gets this, there's a very high likelihood that like you could kill her if you give this to her. The way to not do that is by wearing a mask. You have to go to what their value is. So you can't even just do this like blanket, you know, approach. It's gotta be tailored to the community. Yep, yep, absolutely. And, you know, that almost makes me think, as we were talking earlier in the in this interview about, in this conversation about, we need the Jenny McCarthy's and the Joe Rogan's on our side. But I, just this conversation makes me think maybe we don't need those people. We don't need the Jenny McCarthy's. We don't need the spokesperson to get up on the, you know, the stage and talk about why they don't vaccinate, you know, why they chose not to vaccinate. Or why they chose to vaccinate on our side. What, that's right? what we need, is the person-to-person -person trusted people in the community, right? So if you trust your, and this is a model that's very public or very um, prevalent in health behavior and health education, is sort of the community, you know, the community, what did they, they did it with hairstylists. <laughs> like the, the health workers? Yes, community yeah. health workers. Thank you. Oh, my God. I hope none of my professors are listening to this. <laughs> Community health workers, right? Who do you, who does X person trust? Well, mostly for people who identify as women or have long hair and they are very particular about their hair. Their hairstylist is a person that they see a lot and they spend a lot of time in the chair talking about things, right? My hairstylist knows a lot of things about my life. <laughs> you trust that person. And so what if we delivered messages that way? Instead of, like you said, a scientist on a stage or even a celebrity, there's been a lot of like, what do you know? You're a celebrity. Mm -hmm. I think we see the big people saying blah, blah, blah. But what we don't see is a neighbor to neighbor, friend to friend, you know, my boss and that sort of spread of ideas. Because as we talk about biological agents that are contagious, ideas are also contagious. And so how do we make scientific ideas more contagious rather than i don't know i, I don't want to say mm -hmm. garbage ideas it's not <laughs> no they are a lot of them are garbage ideas based in the nothing mm -hmm. yeah right so tara like you had mentioned you write you have written for self magazine and a couple other popular magazines up for lack of a better term a uh, couple questions one did you get any blowback from your like quote authentic like academic colleagues for writing for popular magazines like that and when did you make that switch because 
I think that that has so much, I, I, I have my master's, I wrote for, you know, I, I have a journal article that I had to go through peer review and blah, blah, blah. I totally understand that that is the gold standard, but the layman, the, the person who is the farmer or the guy working at 7-Eleven, he is not looking at my article in trends and neurosciences, right? right? And even if he did, there's a lot of verbiage in there that he'd be like, I do not understand this because I did not, I do not have my master's in evolutionary biology. How do you kind of like reconcile those things? And I think that is so important to be doing. When did you start doing that? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I've done that really my whole academic career, but it's, it's kind of evolved how I've done it. So, you know, back in the day, like when I was in, in grad school, so which would have been like 98 through 2002, I was living, you know, back, I was going to grad school in Toledo, but I was living in my hometown of Finley, which is like a small, you know, small town and is very conservative. Um, there was a lot of op-eds <laughs> that were, you know, terrible, um, very relevant today is, is like there was one person that was just obsessed with like the, the abortion and breast cancer hypothesis, you know, how abortion gave everyone breast cancer. And, and, and so I would write about like, you know, being a budding epidemiologist, you know, how this was just ridiculous. And, and so I'd write like, you know, these, these op-eds because I was one of few people who I think was, you know, a little bit more liberal and, and just willing to you know, fight back with some of these people in, in the op-ed section of the, the paper when, of course, it was just in print, you know, this is before it was really even live on the web. At that time, Ohio was going through an overhaul of its K-12 through science curriculum and the Discovery Institute, so they're the ones who are pushing, like, intelligent design as a way to sneak creationism into the biology curriculum. So they were fighting really hard in Ohio at that time. So I ended up writing a lot of op-eds for that and came across some folks um, who ran a group called Ohio Citizens for Science at the time. And so they were very active in, you know, in fighting back against some of this. So they recruited me to write for a larger blog that they had started called the Panda's Thumb. And so that was all about like evolutionary biology and stuff. So I would write about, you know, mostly microbial stuff, microbial evolution. Um, so write some articles for that. And then I realized that there was a lot more stuff that I wanted to write about, you know, again, kind of going back to some of those op-eds, you know, that were different types of biology and, um, you know, public health aspects that maybe didn't fit into kind of the evolutionary biology paradigm. So I started my own blog, um, Ideology, in 2005. And so I wrote there for a long time got recruited by an editor at Slate. Um, they were doing, you know, a bunch of different articles on, I think, you know, just what, what is up and coming. One I wrote about was, was kind of the, the risk of, you know, pandemics and, and the next thing. And, you know, um, I think the article was something like, what's the most dangerous animal, which really wasn't the title of it, but it was talking about like mosquito-borne diseases and, and stuff like that. Humans. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so, so from Slate, then I, I kind of, you know, learned how to like, how to pitch editors, how to find a place for the story that I was, you know, percolating in my head. Um, and so I, I've ended up writing for, you know, a lot of different outlets. Um, Self is one of my regular ones, just because I, you know, have a really friendly editor there. And, you know, she knows, like, if I have an idea, it'll probably, you know, I can make it through to actually get, get the final article right. I mean, I, I, in the pandemic, I mean, I wrote for, um, you know, for also for like foreign policy and, and some other different ones. And I've written before for, you know, Mental Floss and Scientific American and, you know, a lot of different places. So it's really just kind of finding 
you know, really finding how how to pitch and then where to pitch. Like, who is the editor to get in touch with? Are they actually going to respond to you? You know, when do you move on if you have like a, um, you know, a, a quick idea or something like that that needs to be, you know, timely? So, if, like for those, I I usually go to NBC. Um, they have a an op-ed section called Think. So, um, so you know, we get those turned around in a day or so. So it, it's it's kind of you know finding you know, which outlet fits what I'm trying, the story I'm trying to tell, basically. Have you gotten challenged by people who don't think that that's like, that's not the real academic way? Yeah, I mean, early on, one of my uh, people who was, you know, kind of a mentor said it was a really bad idea to do any blogging before, you know, or any kind of other outside work before tenure. So he was really, you know, concerned that I was was putting, you know, time into something that wasn't, you know, wasn't peer reviewed articles, which, of course, are the the gold standard for that. But I mean, for me, it was it was an outlet, you know, some people golf and, you know, whatever. And and I mean, I wrote and it was a, it was also a way for me to, you know, one, hone my writing skills, which are really important for grantsmanship and things like that, you know, for getting your art, your ideas across clearly to a, an audience who might not be experts in that field, um, but also just to keep up on the literature, you know, to figure out what was interesting in not exactly my little narrow niche. So, you know, so I, I was warned, but I didn't listen. <laughs> but you told them to go screw themselves. <laughs> well, right. nicely. I said, you know, I, I obviously I kept writing. So. So you have in the past wrote, written, have written for many different outlets and you are still currently writing for several of these outlets, but you also are writing your own book or have written a book? Working on, well, well I have written several before, um, mostly kind of smaller, so smaller books like for, um, like reference for like middle school kids. I've written books on like Ebola and group A and group B strep end up being kind of the same length as like a really long review article basically, but they have to be obviously written at a, you know, a sixth, seventh grade level. Um, so I've done those before, but this is my first kind of real book from scratch. <laughs> so I'm, I'm working on really, it's, it's kind of a biography of whooping cough. Um, so the, the germ and the vaccine and kind of how it came about, but also the, the women, um, two women in particular, who really spearheaded the first effective vaccine for whooping cough. And so they were, you know, these, these two women, you know, never married, um, you know, worked in uh, at the health department in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And what I hadn't realized, you know, when I started working on this was that not only were they like not married, but they, they lived together for, you know, 50 years and, they were you know, they, they were roommates, right? Yeah. Victorian friends. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I've talked to the family and Grace and Pearl were their names. And so, you know, the, the relatives of Pearl would call, you know, Grace, Aunt Grace. And I mean, they, they were very clearly in a relationship. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting story that I, I need to spend more time on. It's amusing to me that when you said they never married, my first thought was, I guess they never got married to each other. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. They're clearly a couple. And then I was like, oh, no, she means that they never got married <laughs> right. at all. Right. <laughs> so I was like, oh, they, never, they were together for 50 years and they just never got married, which is probably really what happened. <laughs> Actually, both are true. They've never gotten married, but they never married each other, which is right. actually what they wanted to do. Right, right. So where are where are you on the timeline of sort of getting it done? I know that I'm, I well, no, I don't know. I imagine 
that this sabbatical from 2020 was partially to be like, I want to work on this book. And then of course it went yeah, co-opted. Yeah, it was, it was supposed to be full time for that book. I mean, I, I had a whole semester off that was supposed to be nothing but book work. And, and now, I mean, I, I, I do it in dribs and drabs. I'm going on a, um, you know, kind of a self-imposed writing retreat uh, next month, just, you know, me in a cabin and a bottle of wine. Right. Yeah. So, um, so no wine. Yeah. <laughs> that, that book would be interesting. It's also very hard to have discipline to sit down and write and think when you've been drinking wine. Yeah. And this is, I mean, it's still a mix of writing and still research. So these women um, had archives three different places in, in Grand Rapids, um, at actually at the University of Michigan at their historical library, because um, the one finished out her career in, in the epi department at, at U of M Public Health, and then also in, in Lansing at the, oh. the archives of Michigan. So um, so I've, I've you know, been to each place and got all their files and- They're like uniting the state of Michigan. Are, That's so right. impressive. Right. So I'm, I'm going through, you know, literally piece by piece, you know, letter by letter um, to, to kind of put together their, you know, their timeline, their correspondence, and, you know, really get, get in more about their, their life. So I'm still kind of going through all of that slowly. Do you have wow. a title for your book? I do. Is <laughs> it's it been per- so long. Pertussis and memoir? It is not, man, what is it? Oh, Midnight Work, Midnight Work. So they described this in one of their letters. So, so they both had, you know, full-time jobs at, at the state health department. They were doing like milk testing and water testing and, you know, all the things that you have to do to make sure everything is safe. They had asked to do a project on whooping cough because Grand Rapids at the time was experiencing this huge epidemic and, you know, there was no vaccine. And so their boss told them that, you know, they could do it if, if they please, like very kind of condescending. So they were able to do it after hours. So they would, you know, do their, their eight to five, come home, grab a, a meal, and then go out and do this stuff from, you know, six to 11 or whatever. So they called it their midnight work. Oh, so. that's, that's a good name. It's better than pertussis and memoir. <laughs> Don't ask me for marketing things. <laughs> well, also what's, what's hilarious about pertussis and memoir is I'm thinking that's like pertussis writing its own memoir. <laughs> right. <laughs> That would be easier, man, if, if they would just do that for me. Yeah. You know, right. Like, <laughs> let me do this. No, it'd be very hard because then you'd have to get into the mind of Pertussis and like <laughs> a few more Pertussis. So what comes next, Tara? You're working on this book. Obviously, that's it. You're still working at Kent State, but you're kind of in between projects, as I seem to understand it. What do you see that comes next? I am teaching, yes. Yeah. So I, I continue to teach, continue to do, you know, way too much administrative and, and student type of work. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, I have long, my last PhD student um, actually was not microbiology related. Well, I mean, was microbiology related, but not lab work. She, she actually did her work on HPV vaccine acceptance. So looking at how information on that virus did change attitudes toward the vaccine. Again, not necessarily uptake, but, you know, how information can change some of that. So I've been wanting to do, you know, a little bit more in that, but also not necessarily even with HPV, but just, you know, really working with some of those like community health workers, trying to establish some programs, especially in some of these rural areas that are, you know, even more vaccine resistant than they were a couple of years ago. 
um, you know, to try to work with some of the, the leaders in those areas and, you know, try to, <laughs> you know, emphasize the importance of vaccination and, and try to make sure kids are getting vaccinated and stuff like that. Um, but I haven't put together like a, a, you know, a grant or a real cohesive project yet besides these ideas percolating in my head. Well, you have all this time on your hands. I don't understand right. how you haven't done it all already. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, do, and didn't, do you have a, like a timeline for your book? Do you have, like, this is when I want to have it submitted. This is when I want to have it published. Do you have any of that? Yeah, I would love to have it done by the end of 2023 so that it would come out maybe like 2024 so I still have to figure out a publisher I, I did have an agent um, and she was she was really she really tried to, to to shop it to some of these bigger publishers she's like just no one wants to read about infectious disease right now so, so I'm, I'm kind of you know working on that not shopping it around to anyone else right now and and just working on the book itself and then hopefully in a couple of years maybe the added you know the the appetite will be a little bit more back especially since it's not just a story of you know just infectious disease but the women really behind it is the yeah that's that's definitely got an emotional pull right right yeah can you briefly outline the like stages of a pandemic and then also can you define like the words epidemic, pandemic, endemic, people are using them interchangeably. And I would love to be able to give some just like basic definitions. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll start with that. So, um, so it, it starts with epidemic. So epidemic is, is basically just any excess of cases of a particular infection, a particular pathogen in a particular geographic area. Okay. So one case of measles in Ohio is an epidemic because we usually, you know, we shouldn't have any, right? Measles has been eliminated in the United States. We don't expect to have any cases in a particular time. If we see one, you know, alarm bells go off, right? But, you know, for something like E. coli food poisoning or something like that, if it's just your run-of-the-mill E. coli, we have thousands every year. So it takes a really high threshold you know, to hit epidemic level, or if there's cases of some of the like nasty ones that cause, you know, bloody diarrhea and stuff like that, just a couple cases of those could be an epidemic, because again, we don't expect to see a lot of those, you know, in a certain area in a year. And so those thresholds for an epidemic can change based on the average of years previous? It, exactly, right, exactly, yep. So, I mean, so listeria, I think, was mentioned earlier with, with food poisoning. So we expect to see, you know, I'm not even sure exactly how many, let's say, you know, 100 cases of listeria in Ohio over a year. Okay, just throwing that out there. I'm not sure exactly what the number is. So if we see 100 cases in Kent in a month of listeria, alarm bells go off because we shouldn't, you know, that we shouldn't see that many over that period of time. So it's all based on kind of what is expected and not only expected in general, but in that particular area, you know, so, so if we see like one case of yellow fever also in Ohio, you know, we don't expect to see any of that anywhere, you know, in, in the country. So that also would set off alarm bells. Whereas if you have some place where that is endemic, you expect to see that, you know, a number of cases every year, which brings me to endemic, which means basically what that baseline is. So, you know, what we would expect to see in an average year for something that is always circulating in, in that area. Okay. So, um, so flu, you know, flu, we expect to see hundreds of thousands of cases 
um, in, a, in the state every year. In the United States, every year on a typical flu season, we see somewhere between like 20 to 60,000, or uh, yeah, 20 to 60,000 deaths. So that's kind of, you know, our, our baseline. So again, if something really exceeds that by a lot, we may have, we may call that an epidemic. Um, if we have a new strain that we haven't seen before, again, like avian influenza strain, we had, you know, some reports of those out a couple months ago where they did see some of those, that's an epidemic because that's a different strain than we see every year. So it, it's, it's, it depends on the pathogen and what we expect. And then a pandemic is where you have basically epidemic levels of diseases of disease in multiple geographic areas. And the WHO has those, I think the, the world, I'd have to look honestly, ha, ha, you know, has it divided into like six or seven regional areas. So, you know, North America, Europe, and, um, you know, Southeast Asia and stuff. So, um, so if you see it spread in multiple of those areas and see, see epidemic spread, not just like one or two cases, that typically is enough to call it pandemic. But the WHO doesn't, you don't really, declare a pandemic, we say that, but they focus on what is called a, a public health emergency of international concern. That's really what th their big thing, because that releases money for countries to help fight it. So that's really the big thing that we look for from the WHO. And pandemic is a little bit more of like a colloquial definition for that. But yeah, pandemic just means, you know, basically epidemic in lots of places around the globe. It's so interesting because somebody like people are like, well, you know, COVID is just it's endemic now. And I'm like, I don't think you, sir, bus driver, <laughs> are the one who's going to be saying when is something endemic. So right. at this point on July 12th, we are still waiting for this pandemic. It is still in pandemic phase and we're waiting for it to become endemic. Is that correct? Right. I mean, what we really want is like some kind of a steady state that we can return to. So, I mean, like flu, you know, again, it's, it's, it's seasonal. So we, we know that we're not going to see the same number of cases like in August as we do in, you know, January. So we expect to see that kind of, you know, that seasonal wave every year with COVID I mean, we have seen typically worst waves in the winter, but I mean, we still have, you know, a big chunk of the country is at high levels now in the middle of summer. So we don't have that kind of, you know, baseline identified yet. We're still seeing all these, these concurrent waves and nothing is going back down to like a zero level, right? Well, and that's, I mean, just even last summer, right? We didn't have to talk about what's happening now because because one of the things you know, that is problematic right now is we actually don't know the full extent of how many people have it, like are carrying it, right? Because of home testing and all this stuff. You think back to last summer, home testing kits were really hard to come by. And so you had to go to a facility where they would report it. And there was this big hope once the vaccines were released that people could sort of like go out and like, was that hot girl summer or whatever it was right, yes. that they were talking about, right? <laughs> Vaxxed and relaxed. <laughs> right. We just could do all the things. And then it was probably right around this time Delta, that we saw another wave yep. and people were like, ugh. and we had to go back. And I, you know, I feel the same. I think everyone feels the same where it's like to loosen restrictions, even on yourself and then have to re-restrict is exhausting. You know, nobody likes wearing a mask. They kind of, they're uncomfortable and they're hot. I don't like to breathe hot breath and <laughs> all kinds of things, but there was so much hope. And then we had to go back and then we went forward 
and then we will go back. And so we just keep doing this back and forward, you know, one step forward, one step back. Every time we think we might be able to move forward a second step, it's like another strain, another variant, and then we move back. Yes. And, and this is part of the reason why we don't get down to endemic levels. We never get past that step forward. Exhausting. Yep. I think mean, it's exhausting for everyone too. Like exhausting for the people who have to deal with it. Exhausting for people who have to talk about it. Exhausting for all of us who have to live with it. I can imagine Tara's like, I, this is not what I got my degree in. Like, <laughs> stop it. I'd want to get back talking about La Mersa. Right, yeah, that's right. right. Yes. <laughs> I want, I want to swap pigs. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> well, I want to respect your time. I really, really appreciate you coming on and joining us. I'm going to say we appreciate it. I'm just you. talking for myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have two questions, as you probably know, at the end. Um, and I get to ask the penultimate question, which is, if you were giving advice to someone who was thinking about going to, you know, becoming a writer and writing more for the mainstream rather than writing for scientific audiences or people who are looking at getting a PhD or people who are looking at, you know, thinking about how to change public perceptions and things like that, what advice would you give them? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, those are things I'm still trying to figure out myself. So, I mean, I, I think it has to be, you know, one, find mentors. Mentors are huge. Um, mentors and, uh, you know, sponsors. So like people who will help show you the way, but also people who will, um, you know, really put you up for grants and awards and promotions and, you know, all of those good things. So I think we really need both, especially as women. Two, know your strengths, know your weaknesses. You know, I think I've been able to use some of the, you know, the background that I had, you know, growing up blue collar, you know, rural America and use that in academia because there are not many of people like me, you know, not a lot of people who really are from that background or understand that. And for that reason, sometimes those populations are, are kind of neglected. So, you know, I think I can use that and, and have used that to parlay that into a strength, really. Um, so I, I think, you know, know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and, you know, just, just be yourself and, and, you know, keep fighting, I guess, which sounds so trite, but, you know, there are so many challenges and so many obstacles, you know, that either others put in your way or that, you know, you cause yourself. I mean, again, I've, you know, I've had three kids along the way and I could have not done that and had a much easier road, but, you know, I, I, I chose to be a parent as well. So, um, so that was something, you know, that, you know, I chose and I have, worked with that in in lots of different ways absolutely awesome. thank absolutely. you and i do not think that sounds trite <laughs> well thank you uh, right now that's even more important is like do not give up you have to keep fighting <laughs> it, even when you have the one step forward two steps back sometimes and you're like wait i was i was further ahead last week or last year or whatever still having to move forward yeah that's absolutely not trite and that's that's so important given that for the political left of center. Right now, this moment, we feel like we are actually being taken back, not two steps, but 20 steps. 50 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not to get too political, but the Supreme Court in that one week issued so many rulings that take, our, take all the work we've done on civil rights, on women's rights, on- EPA, yeah. 
environmental protection, like so much stuff, but we don't get to go forward unless we keep fighting. So I think that is, as Kosha said, it's not trite. It's a message that I think we don't say enough. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we always end on something a little fun. And I love when we have like, we've had a couple of situations where partners have come on. We've had, I think you're the third like set of partners that, that have been on or, you know, brother, sister or something. Um, so your partner already shared. Stole mine. <laughs> I know, right. Your dad called it instead of a bagel, he called it bagel. Mm -hmm. But then what I loved was that that's actually what he thought the word was. Like it yes. wasn't just, it wasn't just his like accent or no, the he wrote. His collection, right? <laughs> B-A-G-O, yes. Yes. Um, which is awesome. And so can you give us some examples of your family act? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think so. So my dad had lots of um, what we call Kievanisms. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, so Bega was a more recent one. We didn't really, I mean, you know, Northwest Ohio with, with um, you know, uh, farm country was not home to a lot of Jewish folks. So we didn't really get bagels around there really until like, you know, McDonald's and stuff started doing like bagel sandwiches. We never had them. So yeah, so the bagel, but I mean, he also like, you know, sh Sheriff was Scherf and um, what else do you have? Like, I mean, just the, the, the farm kid too, like everything was Warsh and extra R's and in, in everything. So you know, I kind of, I, I, I never got into the wash. You know, I thought I kind of got away from most of that. And, you know, we would, you know, like I said, kind of, kind of mock dad about, about his farm kid dialect. But I mean, I have noticed over the last couple of years, how much I say ope, <laughs> like, you know, ope when you're, you know, coming in the door, ope, let me Anything. get that for you. Yes. yes. I mean, so I think that's, you know, kind of maybe our generation's like little kind of farm dialect or, you know, rural midwestern dialect thing yeah it, it totally is yeah we've we've done a lot of of oping around here now, i guess there's actually a twitter account called uh the mid the midwest versus everybody and they talk about ope one of my favorite tweets was like 10 levels of like a midwesterner arguing and like the second to last one is like listen here pal <laughs> <laughs> yes. that is awesome because if you didn't know if from experience, you would look at them and be like, they're all kind of the same. Like one of them is listen here, pal. Another one is like, just a minute. <laughs> Hold on. Uh, but you know that when someone says, listen here, pal, you're like, oh, that oh, yeah. that's, that's serious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it's, I will, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause it's like, I was, I was like, I don't say Ope. And then someone had posted a meme or something and literally 30 seconds later, I said it and I was like, oh my God, I do. I do. I didn't get away from this. So if, if our listeners want to maybe not get a hold of you, we're not going to encourage no. that, but like, if they want to follow you, if they want to see your work, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at ideology, A-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Facebook, if you just search Tara C. Smith, I have an, like an academic page on there that's separate from my family pictures yeah. and meanderings <laughs> and stuff like that so awesome awesome and we'll post that we'll post all of that too um you are fantastic thank you I know you're you are very busy as you have mentioned <laughs> so thank you for carving out this time with us um have a wonderful rest of the summer as you're approaching your new Ugh, school yes. year. are you teaching <laughs> how many, are you teaching a lot yeah I have a new prep this year that um got handed off to me from another 
professor that is is leaving. So I, um, mm. yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. Yeah. Graduate students or undergrad? Undergrad are both this semester. So my fall is my undergrad semester, and spring is my graduate student oh, semester. Okay. So. Oh, well, that's good. And uh, I would just like to invite you back when this book comes out. We'd love yes. to have you back on to talk about it. And um, I'm going to call it Pertussis, a memoir until <laughs> until it actually gets like, you know, greenlit. Sounds good. Thank you so <laughs> right. much for your time, Tara. You were so awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. It's been lovely talking yes. to you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Bye.